0: Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. 1 Kings chapter 2. So if you have your Bible, open to 1 Kings chapter 2. If you're here tonight and uh, you're new or you don't have a Bible for whatever reason, just grab the attention of one of the ushers and they will hand a Bible to you so you can follow along with us in our study we are wrapping up a, a study in the life of King David. We uh, studied First and Second Samuel, and now we're just studying the first two chapters of 1 Kings to kind of tie up the loose ends. Um, this is the second-to-last study in David. Next week um, is kind of a part two of this week. I've been keeping you here late a couple weeks in a row. I don't want to make a habit out of it. And uh, as I was going through everything, I thought, you know what? I'm not going to make it if I try to squeeze it all in. So um, this week and then next week, we'll catch the, this, the and, you know, um, sometimes preachers are like uh, veteran parents in that, you know, like parents, you know, we raise our kids and we give them everything we got and for like the first 12 years of their life, and then we burn out. And then we're like, I just want to be done. Like, get, pour yourself a bowl of cereal and get out of, of here. You know, and sometimes a book can be like that. You know, you, we study David and it can sometimes almost be like, all right, it's time to be done. Like, what's the next one? You know, but I don't want to do that to you. I think there's some uh, things to consider and think about as we wrap up David's life. So um, we're going to do that this week and next. So we are in uh, 1 Kings chapter 2. I'm going to read um, just the first two verses and then we'll pray. I'm going to study with you through verse 12. David dies in verse 12, uh, so I feel um, I feel liberty to summarize the rest of the chapter um, because we're not studying Solomon, but I do want to tie up the loose ends, um, and then and then we'll carry on from there. So let's uh, look at chapter 2, verse 1. It says, "Now the days of David drew nigh that he should die, and he charged, or commanded, or handed the baton." To Solomon his son, saying, I go the way of all the earth. Be thou strong, therefore, and show yourself a man. And so, Father, we again, we just come to you and uh, we thank you, Lord, for your word. It is a pillar of truth, a city that's set on a hill. And we thank you, Lord, that we have it, not only access to it, but we have your Holy Spirit that is our teacher and you, ourself, our guide. And so, Lord, as we tonight look at this, passage of scripture and apply it to our lives, see our world and ourselves through its lens. We ask you, Lord, that you would illuminate it, illuminate us, and that you would be here in our midst. Let us hear, Lord, what your spirit would say to us tonight, and we thank you, God, that you love us enough to talk to us. In Jesus' name, amen. About 15 years ago, I bought a used iPod from a friend of mine to uh, use to download and listen to Bible teachings. And when he sold it to me, he had um, erased everything that had been on it except for one full, complete season of a reality TV series called Who Wants to Be a Superhero? And so uh, us being young parents, having no TV in the house and really still having the energy of youth, we decided late one night after the kids were in bed that we would just watch one episode on this little iPod of who wants to be a superhero. So we watched one, but we were drawn in, and we thought, well, it's still early enough. Let's just watch one more. And so two became three, and we stayed up all night and watched the entire season of Who Wants to Be a Superhero in one night. And it was a horrible next day. Getting up and going to work and having to uh, work through uh, on that. But there was one bright spot, and that is that I was completely delivered, as that I vowed never again for the rest of my life to watch a television show that is a series of continual plots or or, or storyline and plotline and and I've held to it I was delivered I thought I am never gonna let that happen again but I'll never forget who wants to be a superhero and kind of the premise of the show is that these people invented their own superhero and then they had to compete in all these uh, obstacles and challenges and every week someone would get voted off the show until the final superhero uh, was coronated and somehow must have made it into a Marvel movie or something you know, whatever. But the idea uh, was intriguing. And I remember not long after that having a discussion in a small group about superheroes, and it wasn't by any means spiritual; it was just banter. And uh, the question was raised is, who is your favorite superhero? And so we went around uh, the circle around the room, and people uh, chimed in, and some people said, "Superman," and some people said "Spider-Man," and some people said, "Wonder Woman," you know. And, and then there was the, the question of, why? Why do you like that one? Well, he can fly you can do this. And, and and finally the one person it was I remember it was a young girl and she stopped the conversation. And she said that my favorite superhero is Batman. And and someone said why? And she said because Batman is the only superhero that has no superpowers. He is completely just a man and his power is just in his gadgets, his technology and his system. But he has no superpower in and of himself. He is human, yet hero. And it was like, wow, that's something to think about. Well, I like that answer, because in the context of Batman the hero, so too are the heroes that we study in the Bible. And as we come to the end of the life of King David, David absolutely is a superhero, but not a superhero that had any superpower that is beyond, above, or greater than what any one of you and I possess. He was completely human, and yet he is enshrined as a hero. And yet he is very much the same as we are, okay? Now, David, a hero, okay, but he was human. And the only difference between David and us is first of all, the time that we lived in. He lived back then in a certain context, and we live now. Number two, his life circumstances—that is, all of the things, his family upbringing, the culture that he was in, uh, the history that surrounded him, all of the circumstances—and then thirdly, his calling. He had a specific calling that is different, certainly, than the specific calling that you and I have. He was to be the king of Israel, and we have our own separate calling. But otherwise, we were the same. We are made in the image of God. We exist for the purpose of god just like david we are loved by god we have been invited by god into his kingdom to be filled with himself to realize and understand what he has called us for and made us for we have the same school as david the same process the same preparation the same challenges the same promises the same resources and really the same opportunities in a broad brush sense But truly, David, as we have studied him on the pages of Scripture, falls into the rankings of one of the truly great men and women of history, certainly of Bible history. And David has been an inspiration and a model to people ever since he lived his life. And now we come to the text of Scripture where it is near the day of his death. And I want you to hear what David says from his deathbed after calling Solomon near to give him instruction, exhortation, to talk to him. The first thing that comes out of his mouth is the thing that is certainly forefront in his mind. And that is verse 2. It says, I go the way of all the earth. David on his deathbed is realizing that no matter what he's accomplished, what he's accumulated, what he has done or who he's become, all of that is about to be laid down. And the great equalizer, the great finish line where everyone ends up in the end, no matter what happens in the middle, he finds himself now there sitting in the seat where he is looking back over the whole Course of his life and reflecting and thinking about what it was, what it represented, and what it actually accomplished. And the greatest similarity that all people have is that every single one of us are going to die. And of course, someone's going, What about the rapture? You understand, you get the idea, is that that is the great equalizer. Okay? And so no matter where you go from the beginning of your life till the day of your death, we all end in that same place, and David has now arrived there. And the interesting thing about death is that death causes a person to answer truthfully the questions that they try to hide from throughout all of their life. And those questions are these Number one, what did you live for? And number two, was it worth it? And you can run from and hide from those questions every day of your life, but when you're on your deathbed and you're looking back over your life, you cannot hide from those things because right in front of you, all you can see is backwards and you see what you lived for and you are plagued with either the, 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 the guilt and the fear and the worry or, or anxiety of knowing that it wasn't worth it or the peace and the tranquility of being able to look back over your years and to conclude that it was worth it. And you lay down literally everything right there. Jesus painted an an interesting picture of it. And he had just a way of doing it when he spoke in in parables and in stories. And, And Jesus said, it's in Matthew 25. He said that the kingdom of heaven is like a man who traveled in a far journey and he delivered his goods to his servants. And and so he gave to one ten talents, and to another five talents, and to another two talents. He says, everyone according to their ability. He gives people what they're able, and they have the capacity uh, to manage. And then he gives them an instruction. He just says, go and buy and sell and trade. Go take what I've given you, and go do something with it. And we'll settle accounts later. And then the, the Lord went for a long journey. And then he returned after a long time, and he settled accounts with those servants. The time came, the day came where they cashed everything in. All of the books were opened. Everything that they bought and sold and traded was laid out in front of him. And now it's time to see what it was all about and what was actually gained. And that's a great picture. The more you meditate on it, the more you realize how accurate that picture is explaining our lives. Because we spend our whole lives, first of all, discovering what we have. And then we begin trading it. And so we we go out and we begin to trade time for money. We're trading something that we have for something that we'll receive. Then we trade money for things. Then we trade peace for a shortcut. Other people trade sleep for complexity. Others trade their families for a career or for an experience. Some people trade their health for pleasure, you know, and there's all this buying and selling and trading that's going on in this invisible economy that is life from the time that we're born until the time that we die. We're constantly investing, reaping, sowing, moving around what we have. But at the end of it all, we look back and we get to see whether or not it was used in wisdom, whether or not it was productive, whether or not it was worth it. And that is the place where David is. Now, what does the Bible teach us? In in light of this, it teaches us that we are to live life backwards. In other words, the wise person, the person that truly understands and that will look back over their life with peace and and with uh, um, a reward inside and not with regret, is the person who saw their whole life through the lens of the day that they die. That's what Moses was talking about in Psalm chapter 90, verse 12. He talked about how time just goes by like this. It's over in a flash. And and he says, teach us, Lord, to number our days so that we might apply our hearts unto wisdom. Essentially, he's saying, Lord, teach us to live our lives backwards. Teach us, Lord, to realize that our time here is finite, our resources are finite, and what we do matters. And so help us to live always with that in view so that we don't have regret on our deathbed. We saw Saul, who was really the contrast of David early on. And his dying words were that he played the fool. On his deathbed, as he was passing from this world, he looked over his life and he said, I wasted it. I played the fool. David, on the other hand, on his deathbed, is dying in perfect peace, knowing that he did it the right way, thus he becomes a hero. David, on his deathbed, knew that first of all, he began his life well. The first stage of any, any life is the beginning, you know, where you uh, come to, where you're born, okay? And David did the beginning part really well. He responded to God at a very early age. We know that he was the youngest of at least eight kids which tells you something right there. If you are not part of a big family, you probably know someone that has a big family, and that has a whole story behind it all in and of itself. If you're the youngest of eight, you come into this world with burned out parents. You come into this world, and all of the attention that you need has already been expired. It's gone. They gave it to all of the others, and you get whatever might be left at the end of the day. If you're the youngest, all of the opportunities have already passed. You just grow up hearing all the stories of the cool things that your older siblings got to do when your parents actually had energy and cared, you know, <laughs> as part of it. They're exhausted. All the identities are taken. You know, the oldest is this, and he's a Harvard doctor, and, and it just goes on down the line. And you're like, I don't even know what I am. Maybe I could try to be like one of them, but there's no identities left. You live in a chaotic household, and there probably isn't much money going around uh, to to hope that there's any good opportunities or anything that's going to happen. That's where David was born. But he decided at some point, he made a decision that in light of all of that that was going on, there was a God who was bigger than his parents that knit him together in his mother's womb, and he was going to look to God to inform his identity and to be his father and to take care of him from an early age. And so what did David do? The only thing that we know about his younger years, there's a a single verse in 1 Samuel chapter uh, 16. I think it's going to go up on the screen. I didn't write down what it was uh, on the thing. But, uh, but, but there, there's somebody that speaks of David and says of him that he's a son of Jesse, a Bethlehemite, who's cunning and playing and is a mighty and a valiant man. And he's a man of war and he's prudent in manners, meaning that he's wisdom, has social graces, and he's a comely person. He's a pleasant person and that the Lord is with him. That's all we know concerning David's entire youth. But it tells us volumes of the kind of young man that he was. We, we're, we understand that David made the most of every opportunity that he had, even at an early age. He was diligent in his education. He realized that it was on him, that, that it was up to him. God gave him a mind, and that he needed to steward it, and that he was in the season of his life when he could absorb information, and thus he took that seriously, and he put into himself as much as he could educationally. We know that he took care of himself Physically, we know that he was athletic. We know that he was a mighty man and that he was strong, that he looked after himself that way. He understood that it mattered. We know that as a young man, he learned to fight. He had an interest somewhere tucked inside of him that he just wanted to fight. He was probably one of those kids that was fascinated with guns and swords from an early age. And he was probably in the cornfield, literally hacking stalks of corn down, you know, pretending seeing himself in this amazing battle. And he took the, 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 the self-opportunity to learn. I'm going to learn how to fight. I want to know how to fight. And we also know that he was respectful and honorable socially and that he had musical talent that he developed. Here's what David did as a young man that was so wise, is that he developed all of his margin talents. If he had an interest in something, if he had a strength in some area, he went for it. He didn't shy back. He wasn't lazy. He didn't sit around. He didn't say it doesn't matter. Even if he didn't know why he had these interests and talents, he developed them to the most of his ability. He didn't know his purpose and calling from God, so he gave his all to everything that he did, and all of it ended up being used in what God ultimately called him for. At some point, David made the decision that he was not going to rush through any part of his life, but that he was going to extract everything from it that he could. I I think that's so important to realize that whatever season you're in, and I know I'm talking to the young people right now, the younger people, those in the college age, that age where you don't know yet what God has called you for and made you for. Understand this, is that there is something in this season that you're in right now that God is building and developing into your life, and you have this opportunity right now to gain it and learn it and grow from it. And when it passes, that opportunity is gone. And if you wish your young years away because you think there's something better once you're older, then you're probably going to miss something that God wants to add to you in the season that you're in now. I know personally that this is a mistake that I made. I missed out on a lot because constantly looking forward and never looking around constantly thinking that there's something greater around the next bend and hurrying up to get there and thus missing out. I look back now on some of the things that God did for me and allowed me to be in and a part of, and I realized that I completely missed the glory of them because I was too busy complaining that I wasn't where I was going yet. And and there's such regret in it. I, I had probably one of the coolest jobs. I spent four years on top of the sky rises in Manhattan, literally on the parapet precipice of these massive buildings, putting ornamental things on on them. You know, I I literally was on top of Times Square. Like I could give the the, the New Year's Eve ball a high five. You know, it was like, it was amazing to, to, to be in the city from that perspective. I was on a building I got down from it an hour before Sully landed a plane in the Hudson River. You know, if I just, stay, if I just said, you know what, this is cool. I'm going to hang out. I could have literally had the best video that could have gone up on the Internet of that, that whole thing. It was amazing. But you know what? I missed it. I didn't realize how cool it was until five years after it was already gone. Because I was complaining in my heart about what I didn't have yet. And what I failed to realize, and if you can grab hold of this, you will be rich, is that life is like a kaleidoscope it is always changing and it's never the same twice and right now whatever you're in whatever you're going through there is something in it that is beautiful and that you'll never have again find it and extract it because it's a gift from god david did not miss out on that let me ask you a question what do musical talent a black belt in krav maga that's hebrew martial arts A National Honorship Society scholarship, social graces, book smarts, and common sense have in common. Nothing. (laughs) Okay, nothing. Only God knows. And thus, it is essential that God informs the identity. Because every one of us is a salad bowl of talents, abilities, desires, interests. And God will use all of it. Don't waste any of it David didn't. He learned early in life the art of trusting God and trusting to follow God's leading. David did well in the beginning of his life. David also did well in the transition segment of his life. We actually did a, our study in 1 Samuel was called transitions. And part of that was because of the transition that was going on in David's life, the transition from youth to purpose led adult. And there's a transition season that every human being, especially every Christian, goes through. It's the journey from preparation to purpose. And you know what the problem is with the transition segment of life? It's painful. That's the one hallmark of that period of life is that it's really hard. Because you transition from the fruitful excitement and hope of youth to The uncertainty and instability and loneliness and persecution and slander and setbacks and massive swings and battles and bruises and seasons of mental and spiritual and physical exhaustion that come when you're being prepared for what God ultimately has for you. And that's hard. And a lot of people fail in that transition season. They do well in their youth but then they're disillusioned because of the pain that they go through while they're being prepared for what's to come. It's interesting that David ultimately went through the birthing canal of refinement and he came to the place where he was fully prepared. He did well in the season of transition. A lot of people ask the the question, and it's a valid question, is why is it so hard? Why does it hurt so much? Why are those years of, 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 like, you know, Late adolescence and early adulthood. Why are they so difficult? What's the purpose for it? And sometimes you can think that it's punishment from God. Well, is this like is this just like punishment for original sin? Like we have to like it's like the Marine Corps. You know, we're gonna break you before we build you. There's probably a little bit of that break build uh, part in it. You know, certainly there's some value in it. We know that. Sometimes we think, well, is this just like pre pain? Is this God like saying, okay, I want to bless your life? But let me show you what I'm going to do if you ever step out of line. And so you're going to just have a couple years where, is that what that is? No, 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 that's not what it is. Why does it hurt so much? Why are the transition years so hard? Lamentations chapter 3, verse 33. I'm going to count on the screen because I didn't put a a tab in my Bible. Uh, It it says this, and I hang on to this promise, and I hope you can hang on to it too. The Bible says this about our God. It says, for he does not afflict willingly nor grieve the children of men to crush under his feet all the prisoners of the earth, to turn aside the right of a man or a woman before the face of the Most High, to subvert a man in his cause. That means to confuse him, to stumble him, to throw a roadblock in front of him, to subvert a man in his cause, the Lord approveth not." In other words, God wants you to understand that the pain that you go through when you've you've devoted your life to him, and now you're in that season of preparation, God is not willingly trying to afflict you. He's not trying to make it harder for you. He's not throwing obstacles in front of you. He's for you. He's working in you. He's doing something amazing in preparing you. So you say, well, what's the answer then? Why does it hurt so bad? Here's the answer. Because the only thing that hurts more and is harder than the preparation that you go through is to arrive in the place that God has designed you for and to not be fully prepared to be fruitful and to be preserved in that place. And thus God will do what is necessary in the time of transition to make sure that you last in the thing that he has ultimately made you for and that you are refined and that its purpose is ultimately served and that you are not ruined in the process. And we see throughout Scripture and throughout history what happens when people arrive in the place of purpose having not been adequately prepared for it. And it's a train wreck and a disaster. And what we know about David is that David transitioned well. Many people quit during the season of transition, and just kind of spin off into something else at that time. David not only transitioned well, but David established well. Do you know that God does establish? Someone needs to hear that tonight, because you're probably long into that season of transition, where it's just been so hard for so long, and you're thinking, "Well, is this the Christian life? I want you to know that God does establish. One of my favorite verses is 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. And I think I, I, I didn't fail to give it to the guys, but it's 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. And it says this. It says that knowing that after you have suffered a while, that God will establish, strengthen, and settle you. And I love that promise because there is a season of suffering. It is inevitable. You're going to go through it. But it isn't forever. And there will come a moment where you'll look and say, God, you've planted my roots and you've set me, like David said, in a large room. And I'm thankful for what you've done in my life. There are many people that make it into that place of being established, and then they self-destruct there. They fail in the place of success or in the place of blessing. They can't handle success, or they get lifted up in pride, or they go on autopilot and cruise control. But that didn't happen to David. David was ready for it, and when he became the king that he was made to be, he fulfilled the purpose of God in that place. His purpose was to make God central in the nation, and he did it. His purpose was to expand the influence of the kingdom of God on earth, and he did it throughout his entire reign. He never took his foot off the gas. His purpose was to elevate the people that he was called to lead and to thrust them upward and push them beyond even where he was. And he did it. When you read the catalog of David's mighty men and what the people around David accomplished, it surpassed even what he himself did. He fulfilled his purpose. And David continued throughout the tenure of his reign to seek God, to find and serve God's purposes for putting him in that place. And even in David's setbacks, whether they were the failures of his own sins, or whether they're the things that other people did to him, in all of his setbacks, he continued. His roots were set in God and in God's love, and he survived the storms that came at him. David was the man that David wrote about in Psalm 1. Someone asked me recently what my favorite psalm was. And I said, it depends what day it is. (laughs) And and, and that's just the truthful answer. But but one of them is just Psalm 1. And I love it because it says, he that, that puts his confidence in the law of the Lord, that doesn't sit in the seat of the scornful or walk in the way of the wicked, but he puts his trust in the word of God. And he walks in the law of the Lord and he meditates in it day and night. David said that he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in due season. His leaf will not wither and whatsoever he does will prosper. And that was David. His roots were set, like Paul said in Ephesians. He said that you would be rooted and grounded in love. He was rooted and grounded in God. And thus the storms came and tried to knock him off course, but it couldn't knock him off course because his roots were set. He was fully established. And David survived the season of being established. And then finally, David also finished well. The fourth stage of his life at the end. Not only was he faithful throughout his life, but he was successful even in the last stages of his life. You say, well, how do you, how do you succeed or what is a win in the final stages of your life. Do you know what David did that not one of the other kings did intentionally? Some did it unintentionally, but David did it intentionally. He's the only one that fully prepared the next generation that was going to come up and lead after him. He made sure that Solomon, his son, was starting where he was finishing. It was of the utmost importance to him. He wanted the next generation to do better and go further than he himself did. Now, some of the kings did this because they were so screwed up that their sons were like, I'm not doing that. I need to find God in my life. And they kind of like started ahead of their parents just because their parents were so lost. you know. But David said, no, I'm going to set my son up. And thus we have the text before us where it says that he charged his son Solomon... And then he says to him in his charge in verse 2, he says, I go the way of all the earth. Be thou strong, therefore, and show yourself a man. In other words, David looks at Solomon and he says, Listen, for all of these years, you've been able to look at me. You've been able to ask questions. You've seen an example. You've seen everything that comes with what you're about to absorb. But now the training wheels come off and you're going to do it by yourself. You're not going to have me anymore to answer your questions or to look to, or to be your covering, or to take the blow of the hard things, this is all now on you. And you know that there's a day coming for every single one of us when you, it'll be true, someone will die and leave you in charge. And that's what happens here. David says, I'm dying and I'm leaving you in charge. Paul said, that's Timothy. He said, this charge I give you, Timothy, knowing that I must shortly put off you know, uh, this body, this tent, tent. I'm going, but you, this is the charge. Someone is going to die and leave you in charge. At some point, it's on you. And then he says in verse three, because of this, here's what David says, verse three. He says, keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes and his commandments and his judgments and his testimonies as it is written in the law of Moses that you may prosper in all that you do and whithersoever you turn yourself, that the Lord may continue his word, which he spoke concerning me, saying, if thy children take heed to their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, there shall not fail thee, said he, a man on the throne of Israel. He says, listen, Solomon, this is life. This is how you're going to operate in this Uh, This this role and in this life, number one is that you're going to walk with God, that you walk in his ways, that you determine how he works and figure out his movements and his emotions and where his eye is looking and his trends, because he's a mysterious God. And like Jesus would say to Nicodemus that the wind blows where it blows, but you can't see where it's coming from or where it's going. He said, so are they which are born of the Spirit. And he said, you you better learn how to understand and walk in God's ways. It's what David would write in Psalm 78 when he would say that, that God, that his pathways are in the sea. You can't see a pathway in the sea. Try to follow a trail that someone marked out on the bottom of the ocean. You can't do it. And if you don't understand God's ways, and if you're not akin and attuned to understand walking in his ways that he's revealed in his word, and that he reveals in your life as you walk with him, and as you learn by trial and error when you screw up, and then he picks you up and washes you off, and then you go that way again, and when you're about to go the wrong way, you remember, and you say, no, no, that's not God's way, I tried that before, it didn't work out so good. And I'm going to walk in his ways. David said, Solomon, that's going to be essential that you learn how to walk when you can't see where you're going or understand what's going to happen or why you are where you are. You got to keep going with him. You're going to walk in his ways. He says, second of all, you're going to keep his statutes. That just simply means God's values. Every one of us in here has values. If I were to talk to you for five minutes and ask you the right set of questions, I could find out what your real values are, what you really value in life. Well, God has values. And what David is saying to Solomon is he's saying, find out what they are and then make those your values. If God values purity, then value purity. If God values holiness, value holiness. If God values diligence, then be diligent. Like find out what his values are and keep those things, keep his values. He says, and keep his commands. There are things that God just says that this is what you're gonna do. You don't have to figure it out. He already said it. And if God said it, just live in it. He says also, keep God's judgments. There are things that God says, this is good, this is bad. Now, when we do that, what do people say to us? You're being judgmental. You know, for a man to wear woman's clothes is bad. God says it's bad. Okay, that's his judgment. <laughs> if we say that, you can't say that, you know. But, but, but David is saying to Solomon, he says, listen, don't worry about what people say. Worry about what God says. So keep his judgments, what he judges, and let people say that he's judgmental. Also, his testimonies, the things that he has recorded and laid down in Scripture that God has said. Keep those things and whatever is written. And here's why he says that in verse 4, he says that the Lord may continue his blessing upon you. Keep yourself in the place Where God can continue to move you forward, grow you upward, and prosper you spiritually, mentally, and emotionally. Keep yourself in that place. Because God made a promise that if you'll walk in him, that he's going to continue. And it's the same promise that's on our lives. We have the promise from Jesus. David had it for him personally and for Solomon and his descendants. But we have it from Jesus that if we walk with God, then we have the assurance of his protection and his blessing. So he charges David as he's laying and passing the baton, getting ready for the next generation to come. Not only does he charge him, but he also taught him. Notice in verse 5. He says, moreover, I got a couple more things. I had someone tell me last week they couldn't wait for this week because of this very passage of Scripture right here. They said it's their favorite one in the whole Bible <laughs> because it's a little bit of David's humanness and practicality. Watch this, verse 5. Moreover, I want more things, Solomon. You know also what Joab, the son of Zeruiah, did to me and what he did to the two captains of the hosts of Israel, to Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he slew and shed the blood of war in peace and put the blood of war upon his girdle that was around his loins and in his shoes that were on his feet. Do therefore according to your wisdom and let not his hoar head, that means gray head, Go down to the grave in peace. In other words, he says, hey, uh, Solomon, remember Joab? It's like, oh, yeah, I remember Joab. Joab's been been around for a while. He's like, yeah. You know what to do to Joab. Just take care of Joab. Then, verse 7, but show kindness unto the sons of Berzilii, the Gileadite, and let them be of those that eat at your table. For so they came to me when I fled because of Absalom, thy brother." He says, listen, yeah, there's people that did me wrong and they're going to do you wrong and you do best to move them, remove drama, get it out of your life. He says, but there's also some people that have done right by me and I want you to extend the hand of blessing upon them as they go. Recognize Solomon, the people that are going to subvert and frustrate your cause and remove them. And the people that are helping your cause, don't ignore them, help them, lift them up, raise them up. And then he said in verse uh, 8, he says, Behold, you have with you Shimei, the son of Gera, a Benjamite of Behurim, which cursed me with a grievous curse in the day when I went to Mahanaim. But he came down to meet me at Jordan, and I swear to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now, therefore, I'm going to die. But hold him not guiltless, for you are a wise man, for you know what you ought to do unto him. But his hoar gray head, you got to like, you know, People listen on the tapes and what does the Bible say? His gray head, bring thou down to the grave with blood. Yeah, Shimei, I remember the guy who threw the rocks and cursed David with a grievous curse on David's lowest day, kicked him when he was down. And then once David was elevated by God back into that place of, uh, of, of his rightful throne, this guy came talking to his tail and said, yeah, yeah, that was, I don't know. I was in a bad mood. I ate some bad pizza. I'm really, really sorry. Please don't kill me. And David was in a good mood. So David said, all right, I won't kill you. And then he was like, oh, shh. But he remembered. And at the end of his life, he says, that guy Shimei, he's got to go, this whole thing. Interesting. (laughs) David establishes Solomon. He finished well because he handed the baton to his son Solomon. And I want you to consider this. Because watch what happens when David dies in verse 10. It says that David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And the days that David reigned over Israel were 40 years. Seven years he reigned in Hebron and 33 years... He reigned in Jerusalem, making a total of 40. And then watch this. It says, Then sat Solomon upon the throne of David his father, and his kingdom was established greatly. In other words, David set up the next generation in such a way that they began where he left off. He didn't leave it to them to figure it out and spend a lot of the energetic years of their adult life trying to figure it out. He informed them enough and equipped them enough that when he passed off the scene, they were ready to take the baton, and they knew how to run with it. It's interesting that in this chapter, starting in verse 12, the word established is used concerning Solomon four times. In verse 12, again in verse 24, again in verse 45, and then finally again at the end of the chapter in verse 46. Four times it says that his kingdom was established greatly. And listen, this is probably one of the most overlooked elements of David's greatness, but it's by far one of the most important. David finished well because he brought it to the finish line. He gave it his all all the way to the end, and he set up Solomon in the way that he needed to go. Amazing life. He began well. He transitioned well. He was established well. He finished well, and now on his deathbed, he can look back over his life without regret, even though he made mistakes, because he did his best and never let up his entire life. That's living life backwards. It was a blessed life. David becomes a hero. Well, let's tie up some loose ends and then we'll take it home for tonight uh, and set up for next week where we finish the whole thing off. There's a few loose ends that need to be tied up if we're going to really understand what happened uh, in the whole of David's whole story and the whole thing. Well, remember Adonijah? If you were here last week, he was one of the central characters in the story. When David was starting to decline, Adonijah, one of David's oldest sons, decided that he wanted to be king. And so he gathered a whole bunch of important people and a whole bunch of prominent people around him. And he declared himself to be king and he set up a whole celebration and a coronation for himself. And then the plot kind of unraveled because David was told by Nathan and Bathsheba and by one of the priests what was going on. And David sets things right in his uh, weakness of his later years. And Adonijah kind of is sent away scared because David officially makes Solomon the king. And this man who tried to take over and tried to really just steer the whole thing in a way that it would never want to go, he cracks and the crust of his importance just breaks open. And he tucks his tail and runs away. Well, Adonijah, he's got this power lust. And there's some people that just have a power lust. There's some people that just have this wickedness inside of them that they can't let go of it. And so Adonijah, and you can read on it and you'll see what happens, but Adonijah goes to Bathsheba. That was Solomon's mother. And Adonijah goes to her and he says, hey, I got a question, just a favor, just a small thing. And she says, oh, what is it? And she says, well, you have an audience with Solomon and it's just a small thing, really just one little thing. And she says, what is this? She says, ask Solomon for me, please. If I could have Abishag, remember, she's David's hot water bag, the young woman that was hired to keep David warm in his dying days. He didn't marry her. She was not officially, um, you know, with David, but yet she would be considered one of his concubines. And, and, and she was beautiful. The Bible tells us that she was exceedingly fair. And Adonijah kind of, you know, he, he's scorned a little bit, and he's thinking, you know, I can, I'll get something, you know. So he goes and he asks for Abishag. And Bathsheba says, all right, I'll ask him. We'll see what he says. And so Bathsheba goes in, and, and, and Solomon says, what is it? And she says, well, there's one request, there's just one thing. And, and she says, well, he says, what is it? Say on, mother, I'll give you anything. And she says, well, I, I would, why, why not give Abishag to your brother, Adonijah? You know, he's kind of hurt, and he, you know, he's all right, and he just wants Abishag. You know." And Solomon sees right through it, and he says, if Adonijah didn't ask this thing for his own death, who did he ask it for? For himself or for Joab or for Abiathar? He's like, this is just part of the same conspiracy. They just want to, to, to give credibility to their cause because of course you take the harem of the king. This, this is ridiculous. He's done, he's dead. So he calls Benaiah and he says, hey, go kill him. And so Benaiah goes, and he kills Adonijah, and Adonijah is now removed from it. Now, he had begged for mercy earlier on, and Solomon extended mercy. Solomon said, okay, if you show yourself a worthy man, you'll be allowed to live, but you're on probation. And if you violate your probation, you're done. Well, this was a violation of his probation because Solomon saw what he was trying to do. There was an angle behind the request, and Solomon saw through it, and he put a squash to it right away. There is a principle, okay, that we as Christians are taught, and, and it is important, and that is this. It's, it's a principle. It's not, there's no verse that says this, okay, but it's a principle. It's demonstrated and taught to us by Jesus, and that is this, is that trust is given, mistrust is earned, all right? It's part of the whole love believes all things, hopes all things, you know, uh, love never fails. You know, that's, it's part of that whole thing is that we extend trust towards people. We take them at face value. It is unchristian and unrighteous that that you think every single person coming at you with a request or with some interaction has some angle or some hook or something that they're trying to get from you. If you become the kind of person that is that way, you're a bad, dangerous person. We're not to be that way. Trust is given. However, mistrust is earned. Meaning that once someone shows themselves to be continually something that is dirty or backwards, or angled, or whatever, or crooked, as the Bible would call it. At that point, then Jesus would say to us that we're to be as harmless as doves, but we're to be as wise as serpents. In other words, when someone with that kind of attitude and credibility comes at us, our response should be, where's the mirror? In other words, what is it that's reflecting here? You're showing me one thing, but what's behind all the smoke and mirrors of what you're coming at me with? And that's the way Solomon is dealing with Adonijah here. He's already got a check and a red flag up because of what he's already done. And it's very easy for him to see as he looks at the angles what he's trying to do. He's jockeying for position. And we as Christians must learn the art of trusting with face value, but then looking with wisdom and understanding that there are mirrors and smoke and things that are not trustworthy in this world. Do you guys understand that? Okay, I used to, at face value, trust a doctor. They had a white coat. They represented medicine. They don't get killed in war because they're neutral. Doctors care about humanity. That's face value. But then I had some experiences with doctors in my own life and in the life of people that were close to me. And now I've learned, okay, not face value. There's mirrors. Pay attention. Listen. Think for yourself. Don't just take it at their word. I used to trust education. Education is neutral. Education is about propping up the next generation. It's about empowering and equipping people and helping them to thrust them forward. But then I experienced some things and observed some things in education. And I saw some places where education isn't about education. It's about conformity and indoctrination. Oh, there's some mirrors here I've got to watch out for. I've got to think for myself. I can't just trust it at face value because of what it tells me that it is. I used to trust government because government is of the people and for the people. And government loves everybody. And government is benevolent and good. And government would never do anything to harm anybody because government is almost God. But then I learned some government. And I lived in some government, I watched them, and I learned, no, you can't do that. You can't just take it at face value. You've got to look at it. You've got to look for the angle and the mirrors and what's behind what's being said. and doesn't really mean that. I used to, I used to trust pastors. <laughs> I used to, when someone held a Bible, and they declared with authority and appeared to be under the anointing, man, I would do just about anything a pastor said. Then I met some pastors, and I learned that you can't just take everything a man says at face value because of the title that's before his name. There's angles. There's mirrors. I need to be discerning. How's this? I used to trust myself. I used to think, well, I have my best interest in mind, and I would never want to do anything that would harm myself, so I can trust myself. Then I saw myself. (laughs) Then I saw the things that I was capable of and the lies that I was capable of telling myself. And oh, my goodness, there's mirrors in me. And there's some agendas and motives, and I'm lying to myself about what I really want in this situation. I can't even trust myself. But at one point in my life, I put my trust in Jesus. And Jesus says a whole lot of things to me. About how much he loves me. About how he died for my sins. About how he's for me, not against me. About how he has a plan and a purpose behind the things that are happening and where I'm going and what's to come. And how that many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord promises upon promises. Do you know what? I've never seen a single mirror or angle or crooked, corrupt motive or anything that he ever wants from me other than to shine his love. And you know what I've learned? Look at Jesus and walk in wisdom. And that was one of the things that David handed to Solomon. He saw this coming a mile away. This whole thing with Adonijah. Well, once it happens, now he's, got, now he's got the other two as well. So he goes to Abiathar, who was the priest that defected with Adonijah early on. And David says to Adonijah, he says, listen, you're a priest. I'm not going to kill a priest. I can't prove you to be completely guilty. He says, but tell you what, go home. You go to Ananoth and you work your farm there. And he says, I don't ever want to see you in public life again. And as far as we know, Abiathar said, okay. And he was never known again to be a political figure or a problem for Solomon for the rest of his life. Now, Adonijah, or I mean Abiathar was the last of Eli's descendants, whom God said through Samuel that he will never have a man that will rule in my priesthood again. And so this was a fulfillment of what God said would happen early on. And uh, um, Abiathar is off the scene. Well, then Joab catches word of what happened to Adonijah. And Joab knows because he's not a stupid man. And so he goes to safe, like any child playing uh, tag with someone who runs fast goes, and he goes to the temple, he goes to the altar, he clings to the horns of the altar, and he asks for mercy. And when Benaiah comes with his sword to kill Joab, Joab says, I'm safe, I'm clinging to the horns of the altar, and Benaiah goes, I don't want to kill a man in the temple. So he goes back to Solomon, and he says, hey, he's pleading for He's in the temple, and Solomon says, if he wants to die in the temple, he can die in the temple, kill him there. And so Benaiah goes back, And he reads him the charges. He says, this is because you killed two men. You're guilty of murder one on two counts. You killed two men that were righteous and innocent, and it was cold blood. You did it out of envy, and it was pure murder, and for that you die today. And he died in justice with him. And Solomon said that this is to purge innocent blood from my name and from my kingdom. I remember what happened with the Gibeonites and my father David and how famine came because they uh, they weren't set right. He says, I don't want this on me. I don't want drama in my kingdom. Get them out. And so Joab was executed that day. Well, there's one more. Remember Shimei? Remember the rock thrower, the rock hurler? Well, Solomon comes to Shimei, and he says, you vexed my father with a grievous curse. He says, I'll tell you what. He says, I'm going to put you on probation. He says, you go into Jerusalem, you build a house there, and you stay there. I'm putting an ankle monitor on you. The day you leave Jerusalem is the day you choose to die by your own uh, decision and your, your goings. If you stay in your house in Jerusalem, you live. And so for two full years, Shimei stays in his house in Jerusalem, but then two of his slaves run away to Gath, which is the Philistine country, And he thinks, well, Solomon's not paying that much attention. It's been two years, no sentence lasts forever. He leaves, he goes to Gath, and it's told Solomon that that Shimei has gone to Gath to look for his servants. And so when he returns, Solomon calls for Shimei, and he said, listen, you did this, not me. I told you in the day that you leave, you will die. And thus, uh, Solomon does Shimei in according to the word of David and according as Shimei uh, deserved. Interesting man, um, this guy, Shimei, the whole thing. Uh, um, I, I'm reminded when I think of him, okay? He's, a, he's such a picture in my mind, this guy, the guy threw, who threw rocks at David. You ever heard that phrase before, that if you, if you sow a thought, you'll reap an action? If you sow an action, you'll reap a habit. If you sow a habit, you'll reap a lifestyle. If you sow a lifestyle, you'll reap a character. And if you sow a character, you'll reap a destiny. I love that phrase, Because it's just true. You know, the things that we think become the things that we do becomes the people that we are, and it ultimately becomes our legacy and our story. And I just see this guy, Shimei, when he was throwing those rocks at David, he was literally sowing seeds of the day of his death. Here he thought that he was just joining this cause and he was throwing these rocks at this king. And then sure enough, those seeds grew into what ultimately became his execution. Be careful what you sow. Because ultimately, you will reap it in the long run, in the whole thing. Well, it sums up this way, is that David died a hero. David dies an absolute hero. And I want you to know this right now tonight, is that you are already in this moment somebody's hero. There is somebody in the sphere of your realm or of your influence, whether it's your child or whether it's someone who is your friend or someone that you've mentored or you've played a part in their life. And they, right now, look at you, and you are their hero, absolutely. And I ask you the question, you, no matter where you are right now, is what stage of your legacy are you in? Are you right now in the early years, the formative years of discovery and development? Are you in the transition years where it's painful and difficult and you're stretching and being tested and growing and figuring and discerning and learning? Are you in the established years where you have the temptation of just putting on autopilot and coasting and letting success get the best of you? Or maybe you're even near the finish line. I submit to you that there's not one of us here that doesn't want to die as heroes. So where are you right now and what does it mean for you today? If, if King David, you know, sometimes you wish you could like go on YouTube and see something that happened like 400 years ago, right? But you can't. But wouldn't it be amazing if King David, like at the end of his life, like right now, you see a, an ad on television and it says, in a network exclusive once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, King David is gonna be interviewed by Oprah or something. <laughs> you know, it doesn't have to be Oprah. You know, if you don't like her, you could pick someone else. It's better than the view, though, right? I mean <laughs> Mike Wallace is outdated, you know. It's like we just gotta pick somebody, but. You know, and, and there's going to be a one-on-one, and, and King David is going to sit down with him. How many would tune into that? I mean, how many of us would be interested in, in what David has to say? He's about to be interviewed about his life. And there's just one question, one question that Oprah is going to ask David. Just, just one question. And she asks the question, and he sits there, and ah, she goes, wow, King David, your life. You know, Goliath and Saul. And what, an, what an amazing thing to be sitting with King David. And then she says this. She says, what would you say to someone right now that is in your stage of life 30 years ago, or 40 years ago, or 50 years ago, or even 60 years ago when you were just a lad, what would you say to the young 10-year-old who's sitting on the side of a hill trying to figure out how to play a C chord and wondering what God has for their life? What would you say right now to the young adult who's grinding through the persecution of having an awful boss and a dead-end job and doesn't know where they're going, but they love God and they feel inside that? What would you say to that person? What would you say to the person that's made it? What would you say? And then there's this pregnant pause while David thinks and he breathes in. Well, next week... (laughs) David's going to answer that question. And, and it is not my conjecture of what I think he would have said. I am going to take you through a passage of scripture that is David's answer to that question. And it is universally applicable in every stage of life to every person. And it is absolute in its possibility. And it's simply done by anyone. It's one of the most amazing passages of Scripture. So if you want to die a hero, you don't want to miss the conclusion <laughs> of what happens with David next week in, in, our, thing, uh, in, our, in our study, absolutely. But for tonight, what, what do we do, okay? I, I learned this, I... I I'm going to tell you where. It was a, a podcast I heard that Andy Stanley was being interviewed. Now, some people never come back here again because I just said that, you know. But that's okay. But, um, but he said this, and it stuck with me, and it has served me. So I'll share it with you. He said this. He said, he said, before I give a message, I ask myself five questions. And if I can't answer all five questions, I know the message isn't ready yet. They are these. He says, what do I, what do I want them to hear? Why do I want them to hear it? What do I want them to do? Why do I want them to do it? And how am I going to make them remember it? And, and so those are, and those are five things. This is why I say stupid things, illustrations sometimes, and weird introductions about superheroes, because it helps you remember you know, uh, something of what you learned. But, but as I went through those questions at the end of this, I, I came to the, what do I want them to do? And I was like, I didn't answer that question, but the, an- the question is answered in it. Here's what it is. Live life backwards. Learn, learn. To look at your life today through the lens of your deathbed. And ask yourself honestly the question. Don't run from it. Don't hide from it. Ask yourself the question, what am I living for right now today? And is it worth it? What am I giving myself to right now today? What is my pursuit? What has consumed my mind? What is my ambition and my desire? And if I get it, if I achieve it, then from my deathbed, will I look back and say that that was worth it? That that was good? What did I sell in order to get it? What did I give up and trade in? Is it worth it? Lord, teach us to number our days that we might apply our hearts unto wisdom. Because if you want to be a hero then you want to come to the end and you want to look back over your life and you want to say, you know what? I started good. I transitioned good. I succeeded good. and I finished good. Maybe I didn't start good, but I'm going to be good now. Lord, help me. Lord, help me. Jesus, help me. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to inspire and anoint us, Lord, as we've looked at the life of this amazing man that gave himself to you from an early age. Lord, I pray that right now where our compass needs to be adjusted, where due north needs to be set again in front of our eyes, where the narrow path needs to come back into appearance. Lord, where we have turned marginal things into main things and gone off course to what's really valuable and important. Lord, where we have sold what matters to gain what doesn't. We ask tonight by the power of your spirit and the power of your blood that you would move us from where we are back to the place where we need to be. That at the end of our days we would not look back on our lives with regret but with a sense of reward. So Lord, help us to live completely for you. And we thank you that you love us enough to lay out these testimonies and statutes before us. Thank you for hearing our prayer. We ask it in Jesus' name. May you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.